This is William Evans, and you're listening to A Living World Story, a conversation with Art Good Times in Norwood, Colorado. Art is a poet, basket weaver, Colorado's only Green Party County Commissioner for San Miguel, and Western Slope Poet Laureate. Welcome, Art. Hey, thank you, Will. Glad to be on the show. What, what can you tell us about your last name? Good times? <laughs> Had to be a made-up name, right? Well, not exactly. When I, uh, my father passed away a few years ago, I had the great privilege of uh, being home hospice, hospice with him, and uh, it's really a great bonding. And, and uh, a wonderful thing to witness death close up, my own death, his death, the whole idea of death and what it means. So when I went back to look at his papers, I found that in this birth certificate, his name was Vincenzo Buntempi. And so he never used Vincenzo. It was always Vincent, even in the military, all through his life, even though technically it wasn't his legal name. So he changed his first name, and I ended up changing my last name because my grandfather, Alberto, who was a typesetter in North Beach at uh, L'Italia, Italian language um, newspaper in San Francisco, uh, he got up one day, shaved, and went back to Italy, left uh, six kids and a wife, and never returned. So the name Buntempi, as a patronymic, was not only deeply embedded in the patriarchy, but it also had some unpleasant reverberations that I thought, well, I don't speak Italian. Uh, my parents never shared that with me, so uh, I'm going to change it to the English. So actually, Buntempi is translated in Italian to good time. All right. Do I remember correctly, uh, you got a teaching credential from UC Berkeley. Yeah, I have a lifetime teaching credential in California. I was uh, the last cohort, the last year they allowed that to happen, where you didn't have to get uh, regular checkups to make sure you could still teach. <laughs> but I've never used that. No, I, although I, I use it all the time, it was certainly part of the political world. But did I understand you did teach preschool some? I did before that. I actually, yeah, yeah I taught preschool for um, 10 years as an aide, uh, when it worked up to a teacher, and then a director of a preschool in San Francisco. Well, I'm interested in, in how you saw the pathway from preschool to politics. <laughs> I, always, I always love to say it was great training. Uh, <laughs> one of my Republican commissioner friends uh, actually became an independent because Republicans started going awry, but uh, he would always say he'd want a sandbox level of fairness. <laughs> and that, 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 to me, was a great way to strip sort of behaviors down to their essence. And fairness uh, wasn't about equal. I, I think we mistake objective reportings for fair reporting. I don't mind a bias in the reporting so long as the biased person gives a fair accounting of the other side. And I guess that's all I ask for is, is fairness. So for me, learning essential fairness, which was about balancing energy, that became uh, a real trope in my work as a, as a commissioner for 20 years. Uh, five, five times I got elected uh, on the local level here. And, and it was not about the letter of the law. It was about balancing the energy and the law and its regulatory function and intent uh, was definitely part of the decision-making process, but you had to balance not only the needs of the state, but you had to balance the needs of the individual, to balance the needs of the environment. You had to balance all the energies of the more-than-human world around you. So 
when you did that, your decisions became more difficult, more complex. But if you could follow the sandbox rule, always fair. Well, balance is a huge, huge part of of the powder skier, Dolores LaChapelle, you met on your pathway. <laughs> and she, she inspired you to see and experience relationships as she had learned to experience them on the snow and, and on the mountain. You know, that's exactly right, Will. Uh, it was an avalanche that took her out. She was a Catholic uh, a devotional writer. Her first book, which not many people know of, was actually a devotional book. But the, the, the avalanche, the mountain, took her away, uh, slammed her against a tree, broke her back, and forced her to become the ind- independent scholar that she remained the rest of her life, learning about balance and learning that you were in relationship with lots of other energies and forces and that you had to learn to balance yourself with those other energies around you was a, a much better paradigm for me then the original training I received in the Roman Catholic faith as a seminary student in objective reality and objective truth and fixed ideas rather than a flexible relationship. Well, I'm delighted to hear you uh, you bring in the, the quality of balance because I think with that and also what I just perceive in you is um, you— retain enough playfulness in your relationships that uh, you can even bring that into politics sometimes? Well, yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I, uh, again, I was uh, privileged uh, as a young white boy, although I don't like the term white. I'm actually tan. Uh, uh, that's, <laughs> my skin color is not white. And I hate it when they have these uh, 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 categories. The state oftentimes makes you put your slot you, you have to put yourself into. You're uh, white, or you're African-American, or you're yellow or green. I mean, all these really crazy racial terms that have no scientific basis and really are distracting from reality. It bothers me. But, yeah, I, I, I felt I was lucky uh, growing up to experience a very rigid system, a Roman Catholic system, and then to find myself uh, leaving the seminary and coming to San Francisco in the summer of love, my home city. And, and having a delayed adolescence in the middle of the hippie era when all rules were off and all experiments were on, and it was a great time to explore and find out, to do what Michael Pollan says, shatter your ego, and then, not to leave it shattered, but to rebuild it, to pick those things that were useful in your past life. And actually everything in my life has been useful. The seminary, the Roman, the Catholic energy, the, uh, the Latin, the Greek, all of those things have helped uh, shape the direction I've been able to take. Well, play is an incredible quality, and and I I see it in you uh, in a lot of the pictures I look at. Uh, your teacher loved playing in, in powder snow, and she had some wonderful things to say about playing, and one of her observations, which I agree with, was playing changes boundaries. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put that. I've I've always said our our genus is misnamed. Uh, we really uh, Homo, of course, only speaks to half of us, and and Sapiens uh, is is a quite the reach. Um, <laughs> I like to think of us as Humus Ludens, Humus being the dirt, the dust that we all share, and Ludens Ludere means to play. Right. I, I'm a great fan of work, 
in the service of play. But work without play is drudgery, is unfortunate, is is twisting and bending and and hurtful. I, I really think if we could find areas that we enjoy, I love sweeping. I actually really love to sweep something to get it clean. That the whole act of sweeping that rote behavior, which is never the same. The piles of dirt, dust, and accumulated debris are always different. So even the simplest things can be playful if your mind is in a playful attitude. And again, I think it was Dolores's understanding of relationships that you can be in a relationship of anger. And I remember going to SDS meetings in college and being very turned off by the Marxist-Leninist approach of, of codders, of, of uh, elite who led the masses. I, I didn't I didn't resonate with that. It was all angry, and it was all about fighting. And honestly, my attitude to the world is to play. Can you play in war? I hope I hope I don't have to share war. I've tried to avoid it as much as I can. But as we see in Ukraine, you can't always avoid it. Sometimes you have to make a stand. And if we have to make a stand, then I think I'll play at war. Yes, I think I will. Well, and there's a tremendous realm of non-contest play. But I wasn't educated in that until 25 years ago. <laughs> you know, in San Francisco, uh, during the 70s, 60s and 70s, we had a great uh, New Games Foundation. And I'm actually um, in one of their books, uh, Dale, uh, one of the, the uh, fellows that uh, has kept it going. Uh, and they're all non, they're competitive, but they're games that where, where you everybody wins. It's not like musical chairs, that wonderful game from preschool where everybody loses. It's like, really? Is that what we're teaching our kids, that you all get to lose? I love to have games where we all win. And I always look for the win-wins, where we can make everybody a little bit happy. We can play with everybody a little bit. And at the same time, get some work done. Uh, What it means is you don't make giant strides, uh, you creep forward. I see my goal in politics as across the gymnasium on the other corner of the building. And yet, maybe all I get are two or three steps forward in my lifetime, in my term in office. And that's fine. It's not about expecting to solve. It's about balancing energy as we move forward. Do you have a story of a time in politics where you had some component of play in what happened? Oh, it's it's terrible. I guess I should... I'm almost embarrassed uh, for uh, a bunch of reasons. By the end of my five terms, I was well-known to everybody. I served more uh, terms than most of the other commissioners in the state. And so we had a regional meeting in, um, in Montrose, as I recall. And uh, my fellow commissioner, who was staying on in, uh, in, in, in one of the other n- n- neighboring mountain counties, had just had the BLM change its area of a relationship from one uh, 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 group uh, down in uh, Cortez, Montezuma County, uh, to Gunnison County, and, and it it was a it, it wasn't actually a bad move internally, as I learned later. It was probably a good move internally, but they did it without consulting the commissioners. And in, in the West, it's re- we've seen so often when the federal government has shifted its decision making on some issue, whether it's Bears Ears or whatever. Uh, where the local people are not consulted. And I was really upset because we had always supported the BLM. I'd actually gotten an award from one of the conservative Interior Department uh, people for following kind of the, uh, for, for being a leader 
in, in, in assisting the BLM moving forward, even when it was in a conservative vote. And so I was at this regional meeting, and I'd already worked it out with my friend from the other county, but nobody else knew. And so I brought that award that I'd received, and uh, when I asked the, the BLM director who was there, the state director, why they had made this change without consulting, she gave some gobbledygook answer. I stood up. I ripped up the award <laughs> in front of 60 or so fellow commissioners from around the region and just uh, lashed out and said how terrible it was that even people who were who try to help the BLM are not consulted at all in really important moves. And I got up, walked out, and slammed the door. I really didn't mean to slam it so hard, but it was really shocking bit of theater only because I was so angry and I wanted the BLM to really realize they had to work with local people, whatever side of the issue they were on or not on. And so that was really play. It was drama. And uh, I, I, I never apologized because I felt it was deserved. But at the same time, it, it was very rude. <laughs> and full-on theater. Full-on theater, very playful for those of us who were in on the joke. You know, it was meant to embarrass somebody for good reason. Uh, they uh, were inappropriate in their behavior, and they needed to be taught a lesson. At least that was my feeling. And the fact that I was this uh, left-wing, usually very calm and, and, and very nice and very polite, to do that and to act in a way that the rednecks just loved and would have loved to have done themselves uh, was actually quite delicious. <laughs> well... I've had a, a wonderful teacher in non-contest play, and I realize when, I, when I'm really in that realm, I leave my identity behind. Oh, that's an interesting thought, Will. Uh, again, I, I, uh, I, I, I kind of feel an affinity to the mask-making world where we take on different masks, and I found myself... Yes, not being myself, taking on a mask in that playful way, uh, an angry mask that I'd seen other people wear. And so, you know, one of the playful things I loved doing when I was a commissioner in office, and actually in most of the time when I attended meetings, was to do my basket weaving. I have a, a wonderful Ugandan market basket that I carry around, and I have all my weaving. And I basket weave, uh, actually I call them wall mandalas. They're gifts for people for uh, their home, to bless their home. But uh, but it, it's a basket-weaving technique, very simple, wrap and tie. But what it does for me, it calms my mind. I don't get agitated. I don't doodle. I actually pay close attention because I'm doing a very familiar activity with my fingers and hands uh, that uh, calms my mind because I move pretty quickly in life. Other people move slow, and they don't need that particular help. But for me, it was calming for myself. But also, I thought it was a great, great metaphor for what, I felt uh, a representative was trying to do was to uh, take different strands, different colored strands, and weave them together into some coherent whole that made all the colors work. And I felt like that was a good, calming way to work in the public realm to let people know that we were all working together, uh, even as we were talking and sometimes disagreeing. As I think about what you, you've shared so far, uh it's really a way for you to extend your boundaries to include others, human and non-human. Uh, that's so, so true, is what we, what Dolores, so what Dolores was talking about relationship was not the static word relationship, 
which snakes it into a solid floating object. No, no, we're talking about making relations. What Robin Wall Kimmerer is talking about with her, her kinning, uh, what uh, Enrique Salmon talks about with uh, you know our, our concentric world where we all feel tied to each other in some way. You know, I just had a wonderful experience of listening to Craig Childs talk about petroglyphs and do a slideshow here in Norwood the other night. Right. And he was talking about a panel that I've seen many times of these broad-shouldered, narrow-waist figures, sort of shamans, they look like. And many of them have uh, little uh, lines coming out of their top of their head and, and a little figure on their shoulder. And there's actually, he showed a wall of them. And, of course, as a Westerner, I looked at that and wondered, well, what does that mean? What, what, what were they saying with that? And it was really wonderful for Craig to try to bring out, after talking with a lot of his indigenous friends, what we're really looking at was the spirit bodies of the storm, the lines of those square-shouldered figures where the, the rain coming down off the storm clouds as they were approaching, and the lightning was the lines in their head and the the rain was the little bit in the clouds that would come down or not come down, and how, as as indigenous people connected to those worlds, they would speak to those clouds and that approaching storm as as uh, as persons, not humans, but as persons. I guess we sometimes think that indigenous people anthropomorphize the world, and I think it was different. They animated the world. What we call deep ecology is just indigenous animism. We see everything as alive, and so. This panel of figures tacked into the rock that Craig showed us, I began to see it as an approaching storm. And when I looked at an approaching storm uh, just the other day coming back from Montrose, I could see those spirits. And I haven't learned to talk to them yet, but I could see them. All right. This is KDNK, and you're listening to a Living World Conversation with Art Good Times. You... You listen carefully, even though you're working on a basket in a meeting. You're listening, and, and you learn a lot by listening. Oh, well, you know, uh, I was part of the bioregional movement in San Francisco. You know, I'm a city boy. My family goes back four generations in San Francisco. My great-grandfather's still buried there, although they moved all the bodies of everyone who wasn't military out of the city because the land was so valuable. Uh, and actually, on my mother's side, I go back to the... Uh, says California, so I have real roots in the California energy. But yeah, I, I <laughs> I've been really blessed in my life. I, I think I've had some great teachers who've been able to show me some of the pathways to listening, not just talking. And I'm a great talker. I talk a lot, and yet if you learn to listen, you you, you gain so much more. You know, I'm not a good person for workshops, I, I, and that's really big in the world I live in, the literary world. Uh, everybody does their workshops, uh, and you don't get paid for your poetry much. I mean, few, a little bit, but usually you get paid if you perform, and you certainly get paid if you workshop, and that, or if you become a teacher. Those are the main ways that the literary world that you make money. And so I just don't like the whole concept of workshops. Work and shop are two words that are very powerful, very useful, but they're not the words I'm thinking of when I'm relating, making relationships with people and sharing with them some of my ideas about writing or my ideas about life. And so I like to call them playgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it goes back to my time as a preschool teacher, but 
really it's a it's a ground it's we're in the ground of being together and we're all playing and that's what i like to do i like to share it so thanks to dolores and her her work i i've i've sort of uh did a little tweak to what we love to do as, as poets and have open mics where we all get a chance to hear each other but rather than the open mic format or the slam format i love slam poets but i don't like the format much what we do is board circles so we do a sharing circle and and sharing circles are where you pass an object around uh, in the rainbow gathering family that i belong to and have been a member of met two of my four wives there at the rainbow family we pass a, a stick around and the, the talking stick uh talking circles where you have sticks uh, are very powerful but often it, it's such a phallic symbol that i didn't want to continue the patriarchal energy by having a phallic only symbol so I, I, I use the symbol that Dolores talks about, the gourd, which has both the phallic thrust of the male and the cupped energy of the feminine. And when you use that as an object to pass around, it means that whoever has the gourd gets to speak, and whoever doesn't have the gourd gets to listen. So if an open mic happens, there's a microphone, people are talking, they come up and do their piece, they leave. It's not about listening. But when you're in a gourd circle facing people, you really have to listen to people. So you have to hear heart songs. You can hear polished work. I learned this really in San Francisco from a great teacher, a fellow named Kush, who had a, a cloud house uh, reading series where people came in off the street and told their heart songs uh, just as they were. And we had great poets come in, Michael McClure and you know, Robert Kelly, all, all great people whose words were incredibly uh, professionally chiseled and, 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 and really wonderful in so many ways. And that was powerful. But just the heart song was almost as powerful. And so I, you began to listen to each other. That's carried over into my political world, where I listened to the other side. Even though I may not agree, but at least I understood where they were coming from. And, oh, 90% of the time, I didn't see evil. I mean, there was 10%, but... 90% of the time, people had good intentions. They wanted oil and gas to keep the jobs so their community could stay afloat. So when I understood and listened, I was much uh, more willing to compromise on issues because I understood where people were coming from. And it changed the relationship. It totally changes the relationship when it's reciprocal. And, uh, you know, uh, reciprocity as if you read Braiding Sweetgrass, which I think is probably one of the most important books out there right now that makes a marriage between our scientific mind and indigenous wisdom. When, 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 you make, when you make kin and you make relationship and you listen to the world, to the things around you, the more than human, when you listen to your, your familiars, your pets, your, your, your non-species friends, uh, what when you listen to each other, people that are far out and don't agree with you at all and believe in things you don't agree, when you start doing that, it really softens and shapens and changes the relationship. It becomes a, a reciprocal relationship, not just a, a one-sided domination or submission kind of relationship. And there was a very uh, profound form of relating going on in Telluride a few years ago when uh, you you as a community learned of a plan to develop the valley floor, the entrance. And tell us what happened there. Well, you know, that's, it's, it's been a, it, Telluride was an interesting community. When I left San Francisco in the 70s, I was really looking for a commune. I wanted to live communally. I really believe that we, 
we wanted to have uh, not communism but communalism. We wanted to have uh, a, a living situation where we're in relationship with each other. But boy, that goes so far against the American grain, so far against the capitalism we're embedded in um, that it, you know, there are very few instances where it worked uh, more than a few years, and it was very difficult to maintain, took high maintenance. What, when I got to tell you right, I found a middle ground. It was a, uh, a very vibrant, intelligent, uh, hip kind of community uh, with all the good and bad that goes with that. But it was in an incredible setting. It, it, it actually has a town charter where they have community meetings. I actually ended up at one just by chance passing through in the 70s, and I was taken. It was like New England. Here was community making decisions. Uh, they still have a facilitator, moderator, they still elect one, but they haven't had a community meeting in 40 years because they had never had a quorum. Everybody's too busy. <laughs> but Telluride was wide open to many things, and so you were free to do a lot more. Uh, people actually did listen to each other, mostly in the bars, but, but they listened. And so they all told stories. It was small enough that people knew each other well enough um, that, nah, uh, gossip was the way we control things. People gossiped, as we all do. And <laughs> gossip is a very important function, in, as you read in, uh, in um, uh, Sapiens, that, new, that book out about uh, the, uh, a brief history of, of humankind. I, I think gossip is a really forgotten, powerful energy. I know when I was at the survival gathering that the American Indian Movement put on in 1980 in the Black Hills, they had all the main speakers, uh, John Trudell and... Russell means all those characters out in front in the stage talking to all of us uh, Euro Americans who were in the audience uh, mostly, and uh, but afterwards, if you if you notice or before, those speakers would go around to the back of the stage, and there at the back of the stage were the old men and the old women, gossiping, <laughs> and they would they would kind of direct the speakers and what they said and what they shouldn't say or what they should say, and you know it's that kind of council energy for the speakers that in our culture we don't always have. We have people speaking without the wisdom of the elders behind them. Wow. Time flew. We're through. This is the end. Would you be willing to uh, talk with us again about, particularly about Dolores, and continue from where you've just been with a council of elders talking to the, the speakers at a program? Wow. Oh, I would love to. And, and, and I will say uh, the, the, the fact that the Telluride community banded together and raised $25 million in three months in order to preserve the entrance to their uh, city uh, in the middle of the uh, mountains there, it's absolutely a stunning achievement for a community to have done that, especially in this go-go uh, real estate marketplace that is Colorado. Yeah, and uh, it's, a, it's a story that's being celebrated in film here. This is KDNK. You've been listening to Art Good Times talk about politics, mountain communities, and even council, a potential for democracy to meet nature. Thank you for listening.